One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jadakin. Let's start off by thanking the people who subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene, where you get a lot of things that you don't get on our regular feed. You get bonus content, <laughs> you get ad-free episodes. So if you don't like those ads, I got a solution for you. <laughs> you get movie reviews, you get access to our Discord, and you get our undying appreciation and love. <laughs> which is the which is the greatest reward of all. Um, anyway, these people subscribed to our Patreon last week. They are Melissa, Lauren, Karina, Ruth, Angela, Jamie, Becca, Aaron, Sarah, uh, Jody, Hannah, Serena, Valentina, Kay, Haley, Amna, Trisha, Christy, Amy, Natalie. Smidgen, Teddy, another Mallory, Mrs. Hamster, Amber Lonnie, Marty, LA, which stands for Lower Alabama Beach Gal. That's cute. Um, Samantha, Donovan, Christine, Allison, um, Ray, and another Allison. Fell differently though. Okay. Thanks, Allison's <laughs> and everyone else. Thank you very much. Let's get into part three, the final chapter of L. Ewing Scott. Okay. Now, my main source for this episode is the book Corpus Delecti by Diane Wagner. I also use some old newspaper articles. This is part three. As I said, we're where we last left off. That's probably a good place to start. Yeah. Just in case you forgot. Where we last left off, it was April of 1956, and L. Ewing Scott had just been arrested on suspicion of fleeing the state pending his upcoming hearing. Now, he was having a hearing for financial fraud and theft. He was under suspicion of looting his wife Evelyn's estate, and she was missing. Okay. Before he was taken to the jail, police took him out to a meal at Truman's Restaurant. We talked about that menu. That's right. Last week. After the meal, the two cops, Sergeants Xander and Hurdle, drove Scott up into the hills to a fire station where they questioned him. They, yes. These guys, these guys were like, before we take him to the jail, let's see if we can work on him a little bit. Right, before it's sort of more like they have to follow rules. Yeah, they were being a little <laughs> shady here. Yeah. So they took him to this fire station. But by 7.15 p.m., Scott's bail had already been arranged, but Scott wasn't even booked yet because hmm. he was still undergoing this questionable interrogation from these two cops right. at the fire station. Scott's lawyer, Beardsley, nearly filed a kidnapping charge because <gasps> he's like, where's my client? Hmm. And his wife. Well, that, yes. <laughs> After hours of questioning that went nowhere, Scott and the policeman finally rolled into the police station at 11.30 p.m. 
It's always incredible in these old cases how lax the investigations are usually like <laughs> they see it's like you can't even believe how even worse they were compared to today. Yeah. Well, now it's like definitely more there they hide it more, but yeah. it seems like back then they didn't even try. Yeah, they didn't <laughs> they didn't even try to cover up the fact that they were doing shady shit. Like this also seems kind of small town stuff, but it's like Los Angeles. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like Right. And this was like in the newspapers. Yeah, it's crazy. That they did this. And these guys didn't get like suspended or even reprimanded. Right, because there's clearly more of of a watchdog effort now, I think, even if it's unsuccessful because yeah. they're shady and they hide it more. Right. But it seems like no one even cared back then. Yeah. Um, so... Scott's lawyer was like, I'm going to file a kidnapping charge if my client doesn't walk through the doors. But he did at 11.30 p.m. So Scott was then booked and then released on bail like mm. pretty immediately after. So that's why they wanted to get him questioned yeah. early. Yeah. yeah. Following a grand jury hearing on April 27th, Scott was indicted on four counts of theft and nine counts of forgery. Bail was set at $25,000. Scott was booked and released shortly after. The bail bondsman, George Kilman, was ordered to keep watch of Scott because he had already attempted to flee before by buying this car. Right. And so they're like, keep an eye on this guy. He was basically tasked with babysitting him. He accompanied Scott to dinner with his girlfriend, Marianne. He was like the third wheel. And he even spent the night in his Bel Air home. On April 30th, Scott did an exclusive TV interview with George Putnam for KTTV. Scott said he was assaulted by the district attorney's investigative team on the night of the 12-hour interrogation that they had performed at his home. Oh, Remember that interrogation? Yes. Another uh, really questionable, yeah. fucked up tactic. Like, this is not defending Al Ewing. No, because he sucks ass, He too. sucks ass, but you got to do it correctly Yeah, for everyone. yeah. He said they hit him with a phone book and pinned him down and beat him. The Los Angeles Times reported on the interview, quoting DA Ernest Roll, who denied claims of the assault and called Scott a, quote, desperate man. That same article also printed a large photograph of the heads of four balding men who had participated in Scott's hair restoration trial. I don't know if you remember from episode one, but he had... He had unsuccessfully attempted to become like a hair elixir. He yeah, guy. he tried to he tried to make like a hair tonic for bald men. He had one of those ads. Like you always see those old ads. You mean Scott's elixir. Ooh. Special like, tonic. There was like no you you didn't get like no, not fat che- fact checked at all. No. Like now you'd get sued into oblivion if you oh, made yeah. false claims. Yeah, miraculous hair tonic <laughs> restores the voluminous growth of hair follicles <laughs> yeah. on men. Um, so just to like insult him, the, the LA Times has this big photo of the heads of four balding men who had participated in one of his trials from back in the day. The Times said, quote, four men claiming... Four men claim missing woman's husband got them to use cream that didn't work. Wow. That's like his worst crime. 
<laughs> I mean, there was there. I read this article. There was as much text about Scott's one-time failed hair restoring business as there was about his allegations of the DA assaulting him. Yeah, in this article. I mean, it is more uh, funny. <laughs> People want to read that. That's more entertaining. Yeah, they want to hear about um, and they want to see a picture of these four ball guys. And honestly, it's the same today. It is the same today. Meanwhile, an investigation into the source of the $17,000 in cash that Scott used to pay pay for his bail was opened. They're like, where do you get all that cash? From my wife's uh, safety deposit box. (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) Scott was ordered to return to court on May 2nd for the second phase of the grand jury hearings. He had dinner with his girlfriend, Marianne, in Santa Monica the night before. At court, Scott was offered to testify to the assault that he had alleged, but he refused. That night, Marianne was concerned when she didn't receive a phone call from him. By Thursday, May 7th, Scott hadn't been seen or heard from in five days. (gasps) Detectives found the car he had been driving when he met Marianne for dinner, parked on a street in Santa Monica near the restaurant. This car that he had driven to take her to dinner in and parked in Santa Monica, was in the same parking spot for like five days. Right. So he just left it there. I bet it had a lot of tickets. Yeah. They love giving tickets in Santa Monica. Oh, my God. I've like racked up hundreds of dollars (laughs) of tickets in Santa Monica. The car also had a bullet hole through the (sighs) windshield. Ooh. And a second bullet hole on the driver's side door. Hmm. There was no weapon at the scene, nor was there any blood. Crime scene techs quickly determined that both bullet holes appeared to have been fired from the inside of the car. The DA, Ernest Roll, declared the scene, quote, another one of Scott's hoaxes. Yeah. So they pretty quickly immediately determined he did this himself to make it look like... He was kidnapped or injured. Or murdered. Yeah. Or whatever. Uh but it was pretty easy to figure out. All you, if you're like making up a crime scene, you just got to do it the right way. He's got to do better. Yeah. Like, like a, at least shoot from outside the car. He's pretty sloppy. Yeah. Now Scott was due back in court on May 15th. Obviously, he didn't show up. Yeah. So, he's missing for a while. Scott's attorney, Belcher, argued that now we shouldn't jump to conclusions. Maybe he was the victim of foul play. He suggested that maybe Scott's disappearance was linked to Evelyn's. Ooh. So his attorney's trying to uh, paint this picture of this is like a conspiracy. Both yeah. the Scots are in danger. Yeah. A warrant was put out for Scott's arrest. And this time, if and when he was captured, he would not be afforded bail. They're like, we learned our lesson. Yeah. That this time. So now they had all men on deck, including the FBI searching for Scott. The All Points Bulletin issued read, He is conservative and fastidious in dress, usually wears a hat, and uses plastic-rimmed glasses for reading. He will appear to be much younger if his nearly white hair is dyed. He stays in better hotels. Scott does not drink or smoke, but does take an excessive amount of cream in his coffee. His attitude... (laughs) Why are they dragging him like that? This, 
Honestly, this whole APB is them just kind of dragging Scott. I love an excessive amount of cream. It's like this pussy. Yeah. (laughs) And I like the shade of um, he'll appear younger if he dyes his completely white hair. He he stays in better hotel. He doesn't drink, but takes an excessive amount of cream in his coffee. His attitude toward waiters, parking lot attendants, or others similar, similarly employed is demanding, <gasps> and only rarely does he tip. Scott is well-traveled and has contemplated trips to the West Indies and Central America in recent months. He has remarked to friends on occasion that, quote, one can travel through Montreal, Canada, and on to Europe without a passport. Scott is to be held in Lo- and Los Angeles will extradite. I mean, he is just once again proves the fact that if you treat service workers bad, you're a bad person. Yeah, in all ways, probably. Exactly. That that's not, you're not just treating service workers bad. Yeah. That's such a great indicator of the kind of it person really you are. I oh, when if I notice that with someone, I'm like, bye. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's I can't. No. Yeah. Anyway, let's take a quick break here. We'll be right back. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, 
big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. Sightings of Scott were reported all over the state and even as far as Reno, Nevada. None of these tips panned out. The first promising tip, however, came on May 21st from a motel in the small northern California town of Bishop. A man matching Scott's description had checked into the motel two weeks prior under the name Robert Scott. He stayed at the motel for four days and drove a green Ford with a license plate that matched Ewing Scott's. Mm. Bishop's police chief was able to determine Scott's reason for stopping in the small town He had accidentally driven his car off the side of the road, damaging the steering column, so he had to have it towed to a local mechanic. The mechanic said it would take a few days, and so Scott checked into this motel. After the car was fixed, the wife of the motel's owner saw Scott loading the trunk of the car with suitcases, and she was like, there was like an alarming amount of suitcases. Mm. So she's like looking at this car and she jotted down this car's license plate. So that's how she had the plate number. The mechanic who worked on the car was interviewed and he said that the man going by Robert Scott was in a hurry to get his car fixed and that when he was working on the car, he saw a gun in the trunk. Mm. Authorities in Nevada and and Canada were alerted to keep an eye out for Scott. The APB added a new addendum that read, Scott is being widely sought not only for the forgery grand theft charges, but also because the district attorney, grand jury, and courts now have certain facts under consideration, which might very likely lead to an indictment for murder. Scott was believed to be carrying a large sum of cash stolen from Evelyn's accounts. By June, Scott was still missing and investigators conducted a new search of the Scott home, desperately looking for anything that might lead to hard evidence that Scott had murdered his wife. They also looked for any clues that might lead to Scott's location. The only odd thing that they discovered was this wiretapping device that he had set up in the basement. Hmm. And they're like, well, why, why does he need this wiretapping device? Yeah. So when they were interviewing Scott's former maid, Vera, she told police that Scott had asked her to monitor Evelyn's phone calls. Oh. And she's like, I never did it. Good for her. She liked Evelyn. Months passed, and there was still no sign of Scott. It wasn't until the end of September when Canadian immigration authorities reported seeing Scott's green Ford had been because it had been cited for staying longer than was allowed in the country. So his green Ford was on a list of cars that were like American license plates. 
who had out, they hadn't left yet. Yeah, they, so were, they were there too long. They were like had their travel visa or whatever, right? Or they were like they monitor. They monitor these cars, yeah. Yeah. And they're like, this car's been here way too long. So he was on a list. Scott had crossed the border from Michigan into Ontario on May 14th. He checked into the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in the town of Barrie, Ontario, where he stayed for nearly two weeks. He then stayed at a different motel 10 miles away for six weeks, checking in under the name Leonard Spencer. Scott told the other guests that he was an accountant for a large firm in the States and that he needed privacy. He carried a briefcase with him everywhere, including on his walks along the lake. Mm -hmm. Witnesses said that he seemed to mostly eat only hot dogs and drink orange juice. Mm. However, when he did eat at the hotel restaurant, he didn't tip. They did notice that. Over the summer, Scott started dating a woman. <gasps> what Another, happened to Marianne? He just ditched her? Yeah, she's like back in Santa Monica. Like, where's my uh. boyfriend? <laughs> He's a fugitive. Oh, my God. Uh, he meets this woman at a cafe, and he asked her if she would run away with him. And he's like, I got a lot of money. We can live a life of luxury. Mm. She's like, no. And Scott... She later said this about Scott, that he was, quote, too smooth, too moody, and too mysterious about his past. So she finally gets it. Yeah, this lady gets it. Yeah. When he checked out of the hotel, Scott moved on to Midland, where he became friends with their local chief of police. I guess this cop didn't know he was hanging out with an internationally wanted man. I like how the woman is more savvy than the cop. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. like, something's not right here. Yeah, this woman he me- meets in a cafe is like, mm, this guy's, like, there's a lot of red flags with this situation, but this cop's like, well, this guy's, he's a great guy. He's my buddy. <laughs> We're going to hot dogs and walk around the lake. We want another hot dog and orange juice, L. <laughs> <laughs> Then Scott spent a month at the Brulee Hotel. By this time, Scott had ditched his green Ford and was driving in a new car with Canadian plates. When he left the Brulee Hotel for his next location, he got another car. Back in L.A., the district attorney's office really wanted to find a way to charge and convict Scott with murder. They started looking into examples of murder charges where there was no body. The oldest example in California being the conviction of a man named Jose Alviso in 1880. He was convicted of shooting a guy and burning his body. The most recent example was the conviction of a man named Raymond Cullen, who was convicted of murdering his wife and her stepfather. There were no bodies found in this case, but a witness testified that he had confessed to his crimes. The case that D.A. Ernest Roll felt most closely resembled the Scott case was from 1925. In San Diego, E. Drew Clark was convicted of murdering George Schick. The body was never found, but Clark had taken Schick's car, jewelry, and other possessions. But unlike in Scott's case, there was a witness who testified that Clark admitted to the murder. The DA's office turned in turned to the international cases too for examples of these no body convictions. Right. 
In New Zealand, a man was convicted of murdering his wealthy wife for her money. He had attempted to cover up the crime by claiming that she was killed in a sinking ship. Oh. And when they those investigators over there looked into it more, they're like, there's no... That ship didn't even exist. Wow. So he didn't even try to pick one that did exist. <laughs> he didn't even say, like, she died on the Titanic. Yeah. That would have been an easy one to pick. Yeah. Everyone knows about that one. <laughs> In October of 1956, the DA added a murder charge to Scott's case. Ooh. Later that fall, DA Ernest Roll died of cancer, and so William McKesson became the new district attorney. He wasn't interested in aggressively pursuing the Scott's case, the Scott case, so it kind of just fell by the wayside. Oh. So he got lucky with this new DA coming in who's like, eh. ah, I'm too lazy. I don't feel like dealing with this shit. <laughs> I got to go to Canada. No body? Come on. Come on, guys. <laughs> Give me something. Just let it go. Let, get over it's it. It's kind of wild to think like if you do a really good job of destroying the body, then you're kind of like, okay, you, you got this one. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, It is pretty crazy. Yeah. It is pretty wild to think that. Um that's why these like no body cases are just so interesting. I think it was a similar, very similar circumstance in our Carolyn Warmus case. Right. Because there was no body. Yeah. And if there's no real crime scene, yeah. Where there's like blood everywhere or whatever, it's just like a missing person until it isn't, right? Like, right. Yeah. Right. On April 9th, 1957, Scott decided to cross back into the United States. Mm. His reasoning was that he wanted a new car, and he thought he could get a cheaper car across the border. Cheapo. He's a cheapo. (laughs) He's like, I bet I could get like $100 off. He's an idiot. That's a thing that's so frustrating is this guy's not even good at crimes. No, he's terrible at crimes. Like <laughs> so bad but at it. But everyone is so lackadaisical about prosecuting him. That's the only reason he's like if he had someone who was fervently after him, right. it would be done. Right. So he then planned on driving this car back into Canada. He went to Floyd Rice Sales and Service showroom in Detroit. Scott told the salesman that his name was Lewis Stewart and he needed a new car so he could drive to the East Coast because he needed to get some money out of the bank before his wife, who was divorcing him, froze his assets. Why would you give all that information? <laughs> <laughs> like, this is a guy who hasn't spoken to someone in a long time. Yeah. And he just like has to say something. Why? Who cares why you need a new car? The, guy, the salesman doesn't give a fuck. It's just like so stupid. Like, first of all, you just got a new car. I'm sure it's perfectly fine. Right. Like, why do you need a new one? And then why are you telling this guy all your business? That's really suspicious sounding. He wanted this 57 Ford Fairline. Also, the salesperson's probably like, this sounds like he's stealing money from his wife who's about to leave him. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Well, good thing this salesman was kind of dumb. Oh, God. Because they go on a little adventure together. <gasps> Scott Scott also tried to haggle with the salesman to get mm. a lower price on the 1957 Ford Fairline that he wanted to buy. He's like, well, you can do better. 
I mean, the key thing when you're a fugitive is to not stand out in any way. And he's standing out a lot. <laughs> we all know this. He like, still wants to be balling out of control, even when he's a fugitive. Yeah. Scott left the dealership that day saying, well, I'm going to go somewhere else, get a better deal. Yeah. And the guy was like, well, I'll match, your, I'll match the price of the other dealership. So Scott called this dealership two days later, and he was like, here's the price I got at this other place. And he made up a price, basically. Yeah. And the other, dealersh- the other salesman was like, uh, that's way too low. I can't, I'm not going to match that. But Scott, so Scott was like, fine, I'll buy, I'll buy your car. He tried. He tried it. He paid for the car with a down payment with a $100 bill. Scott then asked the salesman if he could give him an address that he could use so he wouldn't have to pay the Michigan sales tax. Oh, my God. He asked the <laughs> salesman for an address. Uh, the salesman's name was Dick Leslie, and Dick Leslie gave him his aunt's address in Illinois. Dick, come on. What's Dick, the, what? Why is Dick Leslie such a 50s salesman it's name? so 50s. <laughs> come on to Dick's. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Leslie selling you the 1957 Ford Fairline. We'll beat any price. <laughs> At Dick's, you can always count on a deal. <laughs> it's Dick's deals. Dick's deals. <laughs> then Scott asked Dick if he could drive him to Toledo. This guy. He was like, I don't have a driver's license, and I heard that I could apply for a license there without a birth certificate. I like how nothing is suspicious about this today. No, the salesman, Dick Leslie, was like, sure, let's go. They're so desperate for commissions. It's a two-hour drive from oh Detroit to Toledo. And he's like, yeah, let's take, take the new car you just bought that you registered under my aunt's address. This is what happens when there was no internet. People had so much time to kill. <laughs> they were just like, they, yeah, I have dog- Waste two hours of my life or yeah. four hours of my life driving you. And they didn't know about scammers as yeah. much then. Yeah. Then they really just didn't. So he, they go on this little road trip together. Um, they drove his new car to Toledo where Scott acquired a driver's permit, permit and he gave his address as the Park Lane Hotel. Later that week, Scott paid Dick Leslie the remaining balance of the, for the car in cash. He then drove his new car north toward Canada, but Scott was stopped at the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel Customs Checkpoint. The immigration officer asked to see his identification. Scott handed him a social security card that read Lewis Stewart. The officer noticed how new the car was. They had some pleasant back and forth before he asked Scott to please step out of the car and into his office to fill out some paperwork. The officer stepped away for a moment while another officer kept an eye on Scott. While he was away, he checked out the All Points Bulletin, and sure enough, the man in his office matched the picture of L. Ewing Scott, the wanted man. He called the police. At the time of his arrest, Scott had $10,000 in cash on him. A deputy from the DA's office named Art Alacron was tasked with picking Scott up from the Detroit County Jail and bringing him back to L.A. Scott, of course, fought extradition, declaring his innocence to the press and claiming that Evelyn was alive. 
He offered that she could possibly be being held for ransom, or maybe she was suffering from amnesia. Could happen. It's either one of those two things. Yeah. She's not dead. They just haven't sent the ransom note yet. Right. (laughs) The key part of a ransom crime. He then accused the authorities in Los Angeles of causing him great mental anguish and for defaming him. Mm. He went on claiming that he was ran off the road in Bishop, California by two or three men. He's like, that wasn't my fault. Yeah. Two or three guys ran me off the road. I'm a good driver. (laughs) And he once again threw Evelyn's brother Raymond under the bus by saying, you should look at him. Yeah. After weeks of fighting extradition, the judge in Michigan finally ruled that Scott had to be taken back to Los Angeles for his murder trial. A crowd of people waited at the airport as Scott arrived in Los Angeles. Amongst the crowd was Raymond Throsby, Evelyn's brother, who hollered, Hey, Scott! And then smiled and snapped a picture of him. Ooh. He got him. Yeah. (laughs) Scott was remanded to the Los Angeles County Jail pending his trial. He hired defense attorney P. Basil Lambros. While Scott was in jail, he was not shy about talking to the press. He wanted to shout his innocence from the rooftops. That's one thing I love back in those days. The press could just go talk to people in jail anytime they wanted to. <laughs> like, oh, he was having full-on press conferences. Yeah, I just feel like jail. it's more, you don't have that as much anymore. I mean, probably because their lawyers are like, don't do that. Yeah. But it just seems like it was so common back then. Yeah, and even while he was in the Michigan jail, he was holding press conferences. Yeah, crazy. And they're just letting him like uh, pop off. Yeah. He's doing the whole, like, I am innocent. (laughs) Scott's lawyer attempted to get the case dismissed on the grounds that they couldn't prove a murder even happened, but the judge ruled against him. The trial was set for October of 1957. Prosecutor J. Miller Levy gathered 98 total witnesses, including Evelyn's friends and family, her former employees, bank employees, the handwriting experts, her doctors, as well as Scott's friends, his ex-wife, and his girlfriend, Mary Ann. Levy said in his opening statements, quote, We expect to prove that after the defendant married Evelyn, he entered into a long, well-planned, preconceived plan of deliberation and premeditation to do away with Evelyn Scott and to appropriate her vast estate. We will prove with circumstantial evidence that Evelyn Scott is dead and that she came to her death by criminal agency. The prosecution presented a detailed account of Evelyn's financial history and of Ewing Scott's handling and mishandling of her money. Evelyn's doctor testified to her good health. Their statements were in stark contrast to the claims that Scott had made to her friends for all that time. She's had cancer. She's drunk. Yeah. She's a lesbian. She's mentally unstable. Her friends testified to the wild stories that Scott had told them about Evelyn, including the accusation she was mentally unstable and stepping out on him with a woman. Scott's ex-girlfriend Harriet testified that Scott had made these accusations about his wife while they were dating. On cross, the defense asked Harriet, 
Is it not a fact, Mrs. Livermore, that you put on a hostess gown which you zippered down which zippered down the front and you opened and closed the zipper three times? Wow. They did a little slut shaming to his ex girlfriend. <laughs> I love I love that wearing a, a house dress with a zipper would be considered something slutty. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly what that dress, that like kind of robe yeah. looking thing that they all wore like in the 50s and 60s. That's with, like velour. With the three quarter length sleeves. <laughs> yeah. And it has like the zipper. It's and a little like, collar. I want one of those. <laughs> yeah. And it has like a A-line voluminous bottom. Yeah. You just walk around your house in it. But it's like so fancy. Yeah. It's like, well, you can get more casual ones because I've seen yes. ones that are like terry cloth or velour. The velour one is is hot. But then there's like the taffeta ones for dinner. Yeah. I don't, I don't, those aren't cozy. No. These are more chic. Um, what are they called? Snuggies. Right. <laughs> but she, I don't know what kind of hostess dress she had on, but apparently she was like, hey, hey boys. <laughs> I love that for her. That's a cute move. The defense obviously argued the fact that there was no body in this case and that a murder could not be proven. Scott's lawyer presented witnesses who said that they had seen Evelyn drunk before. Most of their witnesses were people who perpetuated the allegation that Evelyn was drunk and or a lesbian. I wish she was a drunk lesbian who escaped her husband. I do too. Like, that's like the ideal uh, situation for Evelyn at this point. Yeah, get away from this loser. Yeah. Go live your best life with your uh, secretary. Or whoever, whatever woman is a, silly enough to like put up with you. A bride you met at uh, the, the Coconut Grove. <laughs> who knows? The defense... Um, had all, you know, they had a few witnesses that weren't her close friends. They were acquaintances. They were like, yeah, I've seen her drunk before, basically. Or like, yeah, we went out to dinner and she had three glasses of wine. Yeah. But the reality of the situation is the prosecution's witnesses who testified to her character, there was far greater number of them. Yeah. And they were actually close people in her life. Right. One of Scott's defense attorneys began closing statements by saying, quote, if your husband or wife disappears, you better stay home. Do not go to any place or the district attorney will file a murder charge against you. I can't convince myself with all these witnesses that a crime of murder has been committed. I will defy anyone to find a corpus delecti unless there is a body someplace, whether you can see it or not. In... I mean, to be fair, it usually is the spouse <laughs> who killed the other person. Like, you statistically, know what I mean? statistically, uh, statistically, it is often that person. Right. Like, so the prosecutor would be wise to go in that direction. Right. In the prosecution's closing statements, Jay Miller Levy said, quote, when you take all of the circumstances together, they are a mosaic, a picture of the corpus delecti of murder. They establish together each link in the chain of circumstances that is inconsistent with any rational hypothesis of innocence. A verdict was reached just before Christmas of 1957. L. Ewing Scott was found guilty of murder in the first degree. He was sentenced to life in prison. Mm -hmm. Following the sentencing, the actor, Leo Carrillo, called up the police (gasps) and was like, hey... Two men 
approached me with a picture of Evelyn and asked if I would give a false testimony on behalf of Scott. Like when the trial was happening? Yes. Okay. The men reportedly asked him to say that he had seen Evelyn in Rio de Janeiro. And why him? I have no clue. <laughs> so like he's an actor. He'll be believable. I guess. But that's crazy. How'd they even get a hold of him? It's just so random. Why Leo Carrillo? No idea. They're like, he's going to have a beach <laughs> named after it, right? Doesn't he have a beach? Oh. Doesn't Leo Carrillo have something named after him? I mean, Carrillo, I- Carrillo is... You know, Leo Carrillo State Beach in Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. I was like, how do I know that name? Yeah. His beach is more famous than his acting credits. Yeah. I knew I had seen that name somewhere. At least to me. But why is that beach named after him? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to have to look into that. Anyway, so Leo Carrillo calls the cops. He's like, these two dudes, these two dudes wanted me to falsely testify to help get Scott off. The Los Angeles Times reported that one of the men who asked Carrillo for his testimony was a 34-year-old Richard Mowry. He was a private investigator who was also wanted in Ohio for passing a bad check. Mm-hmm. Mowry and his partner Frank Massad were both arrested in Los Angeles for this plot. While Mowry was being questioned by police, they learned of an even weirder plot that they planned to execute in the hopes of exonerating Scott. Mowry revealed that they planned on planting the severed arm of an elderly woman in the home of Bill Bronner, who was <gasps> Evelyn's friend, and injecting the arm with the same blood type as Evelyn's <laughs> to make it look like hers. Like, that's her, that's her hand. This is some real dumb bitch behavior. <laughs> This is a dumb idea. Oh, this is how we'll do it. We'll get. <laughs> well, first we gotta find a random old lady's arm, and then we gotta get the right blood type. Where are we <laughs> from? <laughs> and we inject it in, and then we gotta repel from the ceiling of Bill Bronner's home <laughs> and drop the arm in his bed. Also, get rid of all the blood already in there. Right. I mean, this is so stupid. They didn't think this one through. It's a good thing they didn't try this. Cause this, that, is, <laughs> this is like they were high planning this uh, <laughs> for sure. That's the only explanation for this. They also decided that they would make it look like El- El- Evelyn's arm by putting a wedding ring finger, a wedding finger, Wed- wedding ring. What's wedding wrong with ring me? on the finger. On the finger. <laughs> they, they, they nailed it. They thought of everything. They really thought of everything. Now, Scott, of course, filed numerous appeals, but they were all rejected. He was transferred to San Quentin in 1960. Scott maintained that he was innocent during his incarceration. He was up for parole in 1974, but he rejected it, refusing to admit guilt. He's like, if I accept parole, I'm admitting guilt. Really? That's what he said. He is that true, though? I don't know what the terms, the terms of his parole might have been that he had to accept responsibility. I would do it to get out. Yeah, dumbass. <laughs> Come on. And then afterwards be like, no, take, I'm taking it back. I just did it to get out. <laughs> right. He did the same thing two years later when a new parole date came up. I love that he's like, I have some principles. Right. I may have murdered my wife and stolen all her money 
But come on. I wonder what the real reason was. I don't know. I think his ego is like so big. Ego and he probably, part of him liked being there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like He probably felt like he didn't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. Because the jig was up. Everyone knew he was a phony. And maybe he had some kind of cachet there. Yeah, he he didn't have like um it's like he had I don't know. There the Diane Wagner's book does talk about his time in prison a bit if you want to know more about like mm-hmm. what his life in prison was like. It was it didn't sound like it was like the most horrific experience one could have in prison. Right. Um but that's just it's just like a few pages of that. Um he was eventually released with no parole in March of 1978. After his release, Scott moved back to Los Angeles. And in 1984, Scott called author Diane Wagner, the author of the book I used for this. He called her to come over to his apartment in the Miracle Mile neighborhood because he had something to tell her important. Is this after she's written the book? Yes. Okay. Or while she's writing the book. Got it. She's been writing this book and Diane had interviewed multiple, like several people connected to this case, including L. Ewing Scott, because he's out of prison by the time she's writing this book. Got it. So she had been interviewing him and he, he calls her and he's like, I, I, I want to have one final interview with you because I got to tell you something. Diane sat with the now 89-year-old Scott, who she said was still entirely lucid despite his age. He told her, quote, I arrived in Las Vegas about dusk. I waited until it was dark to point six miles due east of the Sands Hotel, and I drove up to that point. I put four sticks in the ground so that I would not overcome anything. Diane asked him, overcome what? Scott replied, the digging of the grave. (sighs) Scott then proceeded to tell of how he dumped the nude body of his wife, Evelyn, into a hole in the desert and buried her. He told her that on the night of May 16, 1955, he hit Evelyn on the head with a mallet, killing her. That's why the mallet's on the cover. (laughs) I was was wondering when that came in. (laughs) The cover of this book is like spoiler alert. Totally. Because I was like, when is, I, I kept waiting. I was like, when is Mallet going to come into play? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He says he hit her on the head with the Mallet, killing her. When Diane asked Scott why he killed his wife, he was like, well, she tried to poison me. Oh. So he still, he had offered that as um, right. an explanation of her bad behavior. Yeah, she got drunk and was trying to poison me or whatever. Which that was never... I mean, that was always seemed like a big fucking lie, yeah. right? But he's still maintaining this. He said he had no regrets about killing her and that he felt it was justified. When Diane asked him why he decided to tell her that he murdered his wife, Scott said, well, it makes a good story, doesn't it? Yeah. He continued that he didn't hate Evelyn. He just disliked her. I mean, this is even crazier now that he didn't take parole. Yeah. Because he actually was not innocent. (laughs) No, I really think this guy is like an egomaniacal psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the only way to explain this behavior. 
Absolutely. He also said, now that you've got a good story, you can put at the end of all that goddamn crap and act the Jew lawyer put on, say, will you give me another candy, please? <laughs> what? He, he, wanted to, he wanted to get one last dig at, at the prosecutor. That, what was the, who was the prosecutor? J. Miller Levy. Oh, J. Miller Levy. So he called him a Jew? He called him a Jew lawyer. Jesus. I just like that Diane added that in her book, that quote from him, just to like really hammer home like, He's a piece he, of shit. He's a bad dude. He's bad, and then he's also very old. Because he's like, can I have candy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can, I have a, she, can I have a Werther's original? It was. No. She, <laughs> yeah, she describes in her book that she handed him the butterscotch candy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is it with old people and butterscotch? I don't know. I mean, they're good, but maybe that was one of the most popular candies when they were kids and they still love them. They love a hard candy. I'm telling you, at my grandma's house right now, there is a crystal dish full of Werther's. They are good. Werther's are excellent. But why is that the old person candy? Just hard candy in general. They love it. They They, fucking love it. They love that ribbon candy. Ribbon candy, that's like a staple. Yeah. And it's year after year, so it's just covered in cat hair and, and like dust. Sti- it's all stuck together. It's all stuck together. And they also love those little strawberries. They love those fucking strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> that, you, that you only get at restaurants or your grandma's house. Or the or the white chalky mints that have the little jam jelly in the middle. Have Ew, you ever had those? What are those? <laughs> I know, you can get those at restaurants and they're kind of winter green. Yes. But then know. sometimes they have like a little I jelly thing in the middle. I don't know about the jelly, but I know the chalky mint you're talking about. I loved those chalky mints, but mm. some of them have like this strip of like a gel cert- like material. That is disgusting. But they taste the same. Uh, yeah, those. Ch- I used to fucking put fill my hand up with those chalky mm. mints. <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, you're like anything free. I fucking they have got free fucking mints like. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even like those gross peppermints. At you know those like peppermints, little round discs that you With get. The white and red. I fucking hated those, but I would always grab a bunch because <laughs> I left yeah. the rest and eat them anyway because they're free. It's something because it's free candy. It's free sugar. You yeah, gotta ha- it's like in, in desperation. You gotta have those little fucking mints. Uh, no, I agree. They're not something I love either. Uh, it's like a breath mint. Yeah, for for real. Um, anyway, that's the story of L. Ewing Scott. Wow. I can't believe he confessed after sitting on his high horse. I really think it's just, he's a fucking asshole, this guy. What an awful person. I can't believe he got any pussy. I can't believe how much he pulled. Because he didn't, he doesn't seem like he turned it off ever. Like he didn't charm them to get them in and then turn. He seems like he was always that way. Like he couldn't turn it off. He did allegedly, he did apparently charm these women because he would pretend to be really interested and he would sort of beef up his like, oh, I'm this like uh, financial advisor guy. I mean, I guess they're ignoring signs though. Because if he's mean to a waiter in front of them, yeah. they're clearly like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, he has a he has a stock portfolio. Yeah. I, I just feel like he doesn't seem like he ever changed his personality to get away with murder. 
<laughs> yeah. Which seems like a bigger deal to change it for. He was an asshole to a lot of people and a lot of people clocked him. I think he was, I think he was really good at, um, snowing Evelyn in the beginning enough to get her hooked. And then obviously he was like emotionally abusive to her. So she stayed. Right. Um, and physically And he abusive. also, he's probably handpicking women who might be more uh, vulnerable. prone and vulnerable to being picked. Like maybe, especially back then, it's like you're an older woman, you got to get married, right? Like, yeah. And I, and her friends had explained that. I think we talked about it in the first episode. They sort of justified her jumping to the altar with this guy so quickly. Just they're like, well, she's in her 60s now. She doesn't want to die alone. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, and even though all her guy friends had this guy clocked immediately. Also, back th- then, a lot of the way a woman would get respect was through her husband. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like not like now. It, when Women couldn't even have credit cards on their own. Right. Like, they needed that. Right. Uh, sadly. No, this guy really took her for a ride. And then just like, like we mentioned before, like his, his criming was like so amateur hour. Like the lies he told were just like so over the top. I'm also shocked because I truly thought, remember they had found all that shit in the um, outdoor oven or yes, whatever. Yes. I thought for sure he burned her body in there. I'm surprised that he actually buried it somewhere near Vegas. Yeah. Like, no, he, do you know what I mean? Yeah, he drove all the way out there and did that. Um, and I think he was just like, I'll burn some of her shit or just talk. Like, he's just so doesn't give a fuck. He's right. just very cavalier about it. Yeah. Um, but they have never found her body. I, to my knowledge, they never went out there and dug it up. I mean, it's pretty it's hard. Under the wind. <laughs> it's <laughs> the under wind the hotel. wind. <laughs> it's under the wind. Yeah, who knows? I mean... Yeah, they never went and like looked for it, but it is pretty hard to find a body in a de- in the desert. Oh, and there. it's completely obliterated from the heat, probably. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. That's, well, that's it. That. Well, we will see you all later in a few days for our mini episode, and we will see you, our Patreon subscribers, for our after show. Bye. Bye. 